BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Bill Press Pod and the third and final episode in our special series, Our Democracy in Peril. Week one, we tracked the January 6th insurrection, how it started, how it built up to that fateful day, and who was responsible. Last week, we examined whether those responsible for the attempted coup on January 6th, not just those who carried it out, but those who inspired and incited it, would face the consequences and who would bring them to justice. Today, with the help of one of America's top election law experts, we look at the next threat to our democracy, which ironically could be less violent, but more lasting and more dangerous even than what happened on January 6th. Because as we speak in many states, attempts are underway to undermine the very integrity of our election process, not just to suppress the vote, but to subvert the vote by putting members of the state legislature, not voters, in charge. Richard Hassan has been tracking this voter subversion campaign for the Fair Elections and Free Speech Center that he founded at UC Irvine, where he is also professor of law. He joins us today with a frightening rundown of what's going on state by state and whether democracy itself can survive. Rick Hassan, good to say hello. Uh, thank you for joining us on the Bill Press Pod and welcome. It's great to be with you. So we are uh, concluding with our interview today a, a series that we've been doing on the Bill Press podcast about the insurrection of January 6th and Donald Trump's role in it. And we've been looking, Rick, particularly at the physical attack uh, on the Capitol on January 6th uh, and that failed coup d'etat. I want to ask you and turn to you uh, as an elections law and expert on what comes, what you think uh, is coming next. And let, let me start this way by saying it appears to me that the attempt to overturn the last election has failed. That's pretty clear. Joe Biden is in the Oval Office. August 13 came and went. Donald Trump did not get back in the Oval Office, as he indicated. It's also clear to me, though, that having failed to overturn one election, uh, that the Trumpers, Republican legislators across the country, are now focused on undermining the election process itself. Is that true? And if so, how are they doing it? So I do think that this is a great danger that we face. And the worry is that 2020 was not a one-off event, but instead kind of a dress rehearsal for what might come. Mm. And so this is uh, the danger of election subversion. And it's analytically distinct from the question of voter suppression. A voter suppression we're all familiar with now. Georgia passes a law and says that you can't uh, offer water to people waiting on a long line to vote. Okay, so 
We, we know what that is. But election subversion is something else. It's messing with the rules for how elections are conducted and making it uh, possible that the winner who is declared is not the actual winner of the election. So, so that's really scary. Uh, so how could that happen? Well, one thing we know from 2020 is that it took people with integrity to uh, assure that the election was not stolen. So when the president calls up the Secretary of State of Georgia, Brad Raffensperger, and says to him, I need you to find the 11,000 votes, Raffensperger says no and releases the recording. Well, Raffensperger has now been removed from his power on the state election board. Someone who's running against him is a congressman named Jody Heiss, who parrots Trump's false claims about the election. Right, so one way that we might have a problem next time is that people are being put in power down, down at the precinct level, but going all the way up to secretaries of state and members of Congress who are parroting the big lie and who are making claims that the election um, in 2020 was stolen, which could pave the way for sh shenanigans in 2024. Uh, so that's one way. Another way that things are happening is that laws are changing. And so uh, there was a bill introduced in Arizona which would give the state legislature the ability to second guess the winner of the presidential election, have the legislature assign its own electors. Uh, that bill hasn't gotten very far, but it wouldn't surprise me if that uh, continues. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and we've seen further uh, laws passed that try to criminalize very basic activities that election officials go in. So in Iowa, for example, if you're a local election official and you send out an absentee ballot application, not the ballot, but an application for someone to apply for an absentee ballot without the voter having first requested it, you could be committing a crime. Um, so uh, people are being deterred from serving as election officials, which again opens up the possibility of both error because untrained people could be running elections, but also deliberate chicanery, uh, which is why we need transparency rules that we don't have to assure that our elections are going to be run fairly. Uh, and of course, there were over 140 members of Congress who voted to object to the election results in Pennsylvania and in Arizona, despite the fact that there was no evidence whatsoever that the election results did not reflect the will of the people in those states. So they were just willing to ignore the facts and just uh, embrace a lie. And so if it ultimately falls to Congress, and there are a number of members of Congress who are willing to take this uh, stance, then uh, you know, well, how can we trust that the election results are going to be fair next time? Right. Uh, those members of Congress who voted to overturn uh, the electoral, uh, to change the electoral college, if you will, in Arizona and Pennsylvania on the very evening of the day of the coup, right, where they had to run for their lives and still- Not yeah, not only that. Remember, a lot of those people won in the same election. So was yes, it fraud yes. only as to Biden? I mean, talk yeah. about, a, you know, if you're going to steal the election, you might as well go all the way, right? So you, you're contending that election subversion is more dangerous and more lasting than uh, election suppression. So I don't, I don't think voter suppression is something to minimize, but there are ways around it. So you impose a strict voter ID law. Well, okay. Then you organize people and get as many people as possible IDs. Uh, you know, you work with the rules that you have to try to make things as um, fair as possible. But when you talk about the counting of votes, I mean, now we're getting into really the very 
basic core of what a democracy is. A democracy is a free and fair contest where the losers accept the results as legitimate and agree to fight another day. If you don't have that, you don't have the very basic form of democracy. So the people who are behind these changes, I hear them all the time. They're saying that, and let's start with Greg Abbott, governor of Texas, that our goal is to restore public faith in the electoral process, which was shattered uh, on November 3rd, 2020. What's your response to them? So it's a, uh, you know, a mixture of chutzpah and bootstrapping, right? So (laughs) here you have Republicans undermining voter confidence in the election by claiming that it's rife with fraud when it's not, and then passing new restrictive voting laws in the name of promoting voter confidence. Now, I think the reason these laws are being passed, I think there's three reasons, right? One is um, there's pressure from below. That is, this is the issue that causes the the Republican base to be the most excited because Mm -hmm. the Republican base is Trumpist. They believe Trump's false claims and they're demanding action. So something has to be passed in these states. And I think the things that are passed are not nearly as bad as uh, the things that could be passed. Uh, in part because there's pressure from corporations and from civic groups and others to water them down. Number two, there's pressure coming from above. Trump is, has not quietly gone away. He's doubled down on his statements. He's continuing to claim the fraud. And so if you're a elected official who's Republican and, and you don't toe the line, as we just saw with Liz Cheney, uh, you're going to get President Trump coming in and endorsing your opponent. Uh, and, and then the third place it's coming from are uh, legislators who believe that changing these rules will help them electorally, either help mm. the Republican Party or help them. So pressure from below, pressure from above, and self-interest are all driving these laws. What's not driving these laws is actually a need to improve the election process, uh, because uh, if that's what you're trying to do, you wouldn't be passing laws like this. You'd be doing other things. Where does the power to... Um, control an election, uh, lay down the rules for an election, reside. Is, does it different in every state or state by state? Does it, is it with a state legislature, with local officials, or with Congress? Yes, that's a very complicated question. Ah, sorry. <laughs> uh, I can give you the basic answer. Okay. Uh, uh, which is that the power on fe- in federal elections is divided for congressional elections. It's divided. So, uh, Article One of the Constitution says that states can set the rules for congressional elections subject to federal override. So, when the federal government, for example, says in the National Voter Registration Act of 1993, states have to offer voter registration opportunities in uh, uh, welfare offices and in, in, in motor vehicle departments, that's the federal government that is overriding what states do. Uh, But when the federal government doesn't, then states can run their elections as they see fit, and they can devolve certain powers to local authorities. So it's a mix of all three. Mm -hmm. For presidential elections, Article 2 of the Constitution says that state legislatures get to set the manner for conducting those elections. And the Supreme Court in the 2000 case of Bush versus Gore, which ended the disputed uh, 2000 election, said in that opinion, 2000, just 20 years ago, said that although all states have given the power to choose electors to voters in their states, 
state legislatures can take back that power at any time. So the state of Texas could pass a law and it says, you know, we're not holding an election for president. The state legislature is just going to choose the presidential electors. That's still constitutional, amazingly so. Then when it comes to state and local elections, state and local governments generally have the power, you know, as defined in each state's constitution to mm -hmm. decide what the rules are. But Congress can come in and try to legislate over uh, some of uh, these rules because Congress has power in various amendments to the Constitution, including the 14th Amendment guaranteeing equal protection and due process, the 15th Amendment barring racial discrimination in voting, the 19th Amendment barring gender discrimination in voting. Congress can come in and can pass certain laws that apply to state and local elections, like, for example, when Congress in 1965 passed the Voting Rights Act. It didn't just apply to congressional elections. It applied to state and local elections as well. But in recent years, the Supreme Court has become more conservative and more skeptical of Congress's power to regulate these other elections. Witness the 2013 decision in Shelby County versus Holder, which killed off a key provision of the Voting Rights Act, or just this past summer's decision in Brnovich versus Democratic National Committee, which severely weakened another provision of the Voting Rights Act, both of which protect minority voters from discrimination. So um, you're saying that if, um, let's pick a state, right, Arizona, uh, the electors were going to come to Washington to vote for Joe Biden, in 2024, and Donald Trump were on the ballot, and the state legislature, controlled by Republicans, didn't want that to happen, they could actually override what the voters of Arizona, how they had voted, and send electors for Donald Trump to Washington? No, not quite. What I'm saying is that they could pass a law before the election and say, we're not holding an election, we're just choosing the president ourselves. Got it. Yeah. What happened this past election is that but still that would be denying voters right the opportunity un, un, under the constitution to choose the electors but they don't have a right in the constitution to choose the electors the constitution says in article 2 that for president the state legislatures get to set the manner of choosing presidential electors and and the supreme court as i said is uh, as recently as 20 uh, as 2000 said the state legislatures can take that power back now in 2020 uh, all states did allow a vote for president. Right. But um, there's a very complicated old law called the Electoral Count Act. It was passed after a disputed election back in 1876. This law was passed in 1887. And it's very complicated, very hard to read. But there's a provision in it that says if a state fails to make a choice of, uh, of um, electors on election day, the state legislature can submit a a slate of electors, like, you know, it's a fail-safe provision. So if there's a failure, you know, let's say there's a terrible natural disaster or terrorist attack or something, and a state can't hold its election, there's a backup provision. And what Trump was trying to do was to mm. inject this idea of fraud, get state legislatures to declare their elections fraudulent and to send in an additional slate of electors, and then try and get it to the Congress where there would be a dispute over which electoral college vote should count, leading to another fail-safe provision in the Constitution, which says that if nobody gets a majority when Congress votes, then you do this one state delegation in the House, one vote rule, where Republicans control more 
delegations than Democrats do, and you end up with a second term for Trump. That was the Hail Mary game that was trying to be played back then. So, so we've talked about Arizona and Pennsylvania. We've mentioned a few other states. Is there uh, a nationally organized effort now to uh, un- undermine the election process uh, across the country, or is it just pop- popping up in state after state? Well, so we know that the Heritage Foundation uh, and ALEC, uh, two conservative organizations, have been going around proposing election legislation, some of which has been adopted. It's not clear to me exactly what, um, you know, how organized it is, but we are seeing parallel efforts going on in different states. So when Arizona decides to conduct this sham audit of right. yeah. their votes, well, now it's spreading to something happening in Wisconsin, something happening in Pennsylvania. Again, not clear that uh, this is going to have any real-world effect other than further undermining people's confidence in the process. Uh, but but it's not just in one state, right? It, it So what is the – were all these efforts successful? What would that mean to our democratic process and to fair elections in this country? So already we have damage to our uh, democracy because there are millions and millions of people who believe that the 2020 election was not fairly conducted, that the election was stolen, that Biden didn't actually win the election uh, because uh, Donald Trump and others have perpetuated this fraud across the country and people believe it. And if you don't believe that your uh, leaders were democratically elected, you're going to have less allegiance to that government. You're going to believe it's okay to cheat, to take back your government, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So so that itself is dangerous, but uh, I'm worried that next time we could have an actual successful subversion where the loser is actually declared the winner, right? And that is really the end of American democracy, at least for this period of time. Uh, I guess, which hasn't happened since, as you mentioned, 1876 and uh, Samuel Tilden and Rutherford B. Hayes. Well, we can go back and talk about the 1960 election uh, of John F. Kennedy in Chicago. But in modern times, let's say, uh, let's say over the last 50 to 60 years, I think we do have good confidence that our elections were fairly conducted in the United States. So you have said that this next time, were they successful, uh, would be... Uh, I guess your, your phrase is a much more respectable coup, right? A blood, bloodless coup. They wouldn't have to storm the Capitol. They would do it, um, I guess, legally by passing these laws. Is that what you're saying? Well, so in the, the piece you're referring to, which appeared in Slate, uh, I was uh, yeah. talk, talking about how um, there could be certain legal arguments to try to overturn election results the kinds of legal arguments that would be more appealing to the conservative judges that uh, Trump was able to put on the courts than the arguments about fraud, which were pretty mm-hmm. much uniformly rejected by these Trump uh, appointed judges, right? So those, cha- those, those charges got no traction because they were neither legally supported nor factually supported. So, um, you know, what I was talking about is a kind of complex lawyerly argument that could help to overturn election results. And I I can walk you through it if you want, but it's something called the independent state legislature doctrine. And it would provide the kind of argument. That's very important. No, please do. And I think that's sort of the summation of, of what these people could claim, right? Well, so there's kind of the brute force coup. There's the, um, you know, state legislatures trying to 
appoint electors for no reason and Congress accepting it, which would also be to me, you know, extra legal or, um, uh, you know, violating democratic norms. Or then there's this, uh, this other idea. So uh, let's go back to 2020. Uh, we had a very difficult election because of COVID. Uh, we had lots of lawsuits either requiring states to change their election rules because they were not sufficiently taking into account COVID or being sued for changing their rules uh, to accommodate COVID. So one of those lawsuits took place in Pennsylvania. And the argument was that it's a lot harder for people to vote um, because of the pandemic and to vote by mail. And we're having trouble with the USPS. You may remember there were slowdowns of the mail uh, during this period. Yep. And so someone sued uh, and said, uh, we need to extend the deadline for the receipt of ballots on uh, that come in from the mail on election day. And the state Supreme Court, relying on the state constitution, not the US constitution, but Pennsylvania's constitution, which guarantees free and fair elections, ruled that under the state constitution, the uh, ballots that uh, came in had to be received within three days of election day. So the state statute passed by the legislature said they've got to be received on election day. The state Supreme Court said, no, we're going to extend it three extra days because this, that, that is going to protect the constitutional rights of Pennsylvanians under the state constitution. So then Republicans sued. They went to the U.S. Supreme Court and they said, when the state Supreme Court, relying on the state constitution, extended the, uh, uh, t the number of days to receive the ballots, they violated the U.S. Constitution because the wow. U.S. Constitution gives state legislatures, the legislatures, the power to pass election rules. And anything that's done in derogation of the state legislature's power, that is a um, violation of the U.S. Constitution. And this theory uh, called the independent state legislature doctrine uh, garnered the support of four justices on the Supreme Court and possibly five or six. Uh, if the election had come down to Pennsylvania and if it had come down to those ballots, I think we very well could have had um, a different result in the presidential election because I think a majority of the Supreme Court could have changed the outcome of the election. Fortunately. There were only about 10,000 ballots that came in in the three-day period, and Biden won the state by 80,000 votes. Mm. And so those 10,000 votes didn't matter. But we came that close, right? Right, right. And so this is a theory that could be used next time to try to overturn any kinds of state election rulings or even things that a uh, – an executive or an election administrator does, if you could plausibly make the claim that it violates what the state legislature wrote in the statute, then this doctrine could potentially apply. Boy, it is scarier than I thought. Rick Hassan is our guest today uh, on the Bill Press Pod, professor of law at UC Irvine and co-director of the Fair Elections and Free Speech Center at the university, one of the nation's leading election law experts. We're going to take a quick break. Rick, Rick when we come back, I want to ask you um, whom we can turn to uh, <laughs> to help us fix this mess, whether it's the courts or the Congress or the president or whomever. We'll take a quick break and we'll be right back. Today's podcast brought to you by the United Food and Commercial Workers Union. Yes, those good men and women, 1.3 million working men and women strong members of the UFCW under President Mark Perrone, 
they service all of us in many, many different ways at our big retail stores like Nordstrom and Macy's. The people that take care of us at our great grocery chains like Safeway and Whole Foods. Those on the front line in our meat and poultry processing plants, chemical plants, and cannabis plants. We thank the men and women of the UFCW for their great work taking care of all of us Americans, and we thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Go to their website, check it out at ufcw.org. You'll be amazed at all the good causes they're involved in. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And we're back on today's podcast with uh, Rick Hassan. He is uh, out at UC Irvine, professor of law, one of the nation's leading election law experts, has his own election law blog. So, Rick, we've been talking about the courts. Uh, you know, most people feel something's going wrong and the state legislature or the Congress are screwing up. We can count on the courts to set things right. What I hear you say is whether it's the um, state Supreme Court or the U.S. Supreme Court, um, we could be on shaky ground. So there's an old uh, saying by election administrators, uh, which is, uh, Lord, that th let this election not be close. It's the election huh. administrator's prayer. And, uh, you know, the, the unfortunate fact is that we have very close elections in this country because we are closely divided and deeply divided. When it's this close, manipulating the rules can make a difference. You know, if it were a Biden blowout in the Electoral College, it would be much harder to make these claims, right? This is why Trump couldn't overturn the election results, because it didn't just turn on one state. He would have had to flip at least three states. Uh, but I'm worrying about things now that I never expected to worry about in my lifetime in the United States. Are we going to be able to conduct free and fair elections? That, is that really a question you ask in the United States? And unfortunately, it is. When you look at what this, the Supreme Court did recently, uh, voting six to three to uphold two election laws passed in Arizona, um, does that, that indicate to you that if these um, challenges came up to the Supreme Court, um, they would, um, they'd go along with them, basically? Uh, give this, with this state legislative supremacy doctrine? It really depends on how these cases come up. They're, you know, they're very complex. And I don't think of the judges on the Supreme Court, the justices on the Supreme Court as being party hacks who are just going to do whatever helps the Republican Party. If that were the case, the court would have taken that Texas case when Texas, where Texas tried to yeah. overturn the results. But if you could come up with a fancy enough legal theory, it might work. I mean, just look at what's happening with this abortion case out of Texas. 
uh, Texas, you know, a couple of Texas lawyers came up with a way of trying to draft around um, the rules that normally cause abortion laws to be uh, put on hold or, or struck down by courts. And the conservative majority of the Supreme Court said, oh, yeah, you know, we'll go along with that. So mm-hmm. it really depends on how close the election is, what the legal theory is, and whether or not it makes a difference to the outcome of the election. But even before the three Trump justices hit the court, back in 2013, the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act, right? Now, with these three Trump justices, isn't it even more likely that they will will not uphold what we would consider uh, the heart of voting rights in this country? So again, I want to go back to the distinction I drew at the beginning of our discussion between voter suppression and election subversion. Yeah. I think on voter suppression, the Supreme Court is awful. Uh, there were really three ways to attack voting rights uh, as, a, as, as a voting rights uh, plaintiff in, in the United States. One is to make a constitutional claim. One was to use Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. And one is to use Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. And in a series of cases, Crawford versus Marion County Election Board, Shelby County versus Holder, and the Brnovich versus Democratic National Committee case that was decided last July, which you just referenced, the court has utterly eviscerated voting rights. Uh, it made it very hard for voting rights plaintiffs to be able to succeed in challenging restrictive voting laws. That's different, however, from the question of whether the Supreme Court would let Trumpist forces steal the election. And there, I think they will hold the line if the theories are as laughably weak mm-hmm. as they were in, in 2020. But if there are plausible legal bases, like the independent state legislature doctrine, that could provide a basis for uh, flipping an election result. So what, it's, like, it's a kind of subtle point, but there's a difference, uh, again, between protecting voting rights, Supreme Court's awful, and holding the line on the rule of law, which the Supreme Court so far has been able to do. Got it. Now, what is the role or what should be the role of the Department of Justice? Well, the Department of Justice has a key um, role in enforcing the Voting Rights Act, but it can only do so much. Uh, It is bound by the decisions of the Supreme Court, as uh, as are the lower courts where these cases are brought. And so the Department of Justice has sued Georgia over its restrictive voting law. But after the decision this summer in the Brnovich case, it's going to be very hard to win that case. And so... Uh, DOJ can do what it can to protect voting rights, but it, it is working in the shadow of a Supreme Court that is hostile to voting rights. It can open up investigations into attempts to uh, spread disinformation about elections, but you know, there's only so much federal law that prevents uh, misleading uh, information from spreading. And of course, we have a First Amendment. So uh, DOJ has a role to play, um, but it's going to really be, you know, I get asked all the time, how should we try to protect voting in this country uh, over the next uh, five to 10 years? And I say it's going to be a state by state battle where it's going to be fought in state legislatures, in, uh, in state courts, and potentially leading to protests in the street to protect democracy. This is not going to be an easy period for the United States. Is Merrick, is Merrick Garland making it enough of a priority in your opinion? Is it a top priority for him? Well, I think that, uh, you know, I, I don't know how he's dividing his time, but it, it's somewhat hard to think of what it is that he could be doing that he's not doing. 
Um, so, you know, there, again, he's constrained by what the Supreme Court does. And so I mm-hmm. think I, I don't see the failure as a failure at DOJ. If you want a failure, let's point the finger at Joe Manchin. Um, yeah, because I'm, I'm getting I'm going there next. Right? If, you're, if you're willing to blow up the filibuster for judicial nominations and other nominations, you should be able to blow it up for voting rights. I mean, really, what we need is federal legislation that prevents election subversion and voter suppression. But again, my top priority right now is preventing election subversion. Uh, And do you believe that the Congress could pass a a bill that would be constitutional, right, that would make it clear that state legislatures cannot override the will of the people and the vote of the people? Uh, Well, I think that there's a lot of room for passing laws that make elections subversion harder. For example, laws that require transparency and paper ballots so that there can be recounts, things like that. In terms of overriding the will of the people. I don't think Congress could pass a law that says the state legislatures can't directly appoint electors, but they would, if a state legislature did that, took away the vote of the people, they take a huge political hit. What Congress could do is rewrite the Electoral Count Act to make it much harder to submit sham alternative slates of electors that could be objected to by members of Congress and voted on. So there is a lot that could be done that I think the Supreme Court would not touch. Uh, And the For the People Act uh, and plus the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, uh, you believe, would be uh, our important national priorities and would require uh, either ending or or amending the the filibuster. So I haven't endorsed the For the People Act. There's there's some stuff in there I think that's unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's some stuff that I think should not be a priority. I prefer focusing on what's most important. Um, which is preventing election subversion. I think it's unclear if the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, which I support, would be upheld by this Supreme Court as constitutional. But again, uh, you know, I, I, we are at, you know, DEFCON 5, whatever, that we're at the highest level of alert right now. We need to make sure we can conduct a free and fair election in 2024. And that's going to require congressional action while Democrats still control the Congress. So wrapping up, um, before I do, I want to come back just to one, one specific example of voter suppression, and that is the effort to um, either ban or extremely limit vote by mail. Uh, now, I don't know whether you know, I was a, at one time Democratic chair of California, uh, and I ran a lot of uh, registration uh, programs and uh, vote by mail programs. You know, at the time, and this was maybe 20 years ago, right? Not that long ago. We always considered voting by mail to be the Republican stronghold, right? They were good at this. They got their people to vote early and those ballots were in. And as Democrats, we always felt that we were at a disadvantage because of those vote by mail programs. What is your take on vote by mail? Does it work? And is there any any sign at all of massive voter fraud with vote by mail and why the hell are Republicans so dead beat against it? That's a long well, question. I know that, but. <laughs> it's, it's a, it's a multi-part question. So right. uh, what I'd say first is that um, you're right that Republicans only started opposing vote by mail when Democrats started using it to their advantage. Uh-huh. And, that, and that traditionally Republicans, not just in California, but in Florida have been huge supporters of vote by mail. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, and, and vote by mail was heavily encouraged because of the pandemic, because it provided a safe way to, to vote. Right. Now, voter fraud in the United States is quite rare. When it does happen, it's far more likely to happen with vote by mail ballots than in-person balloting. That's because ballots are out of the control of election officials. They can be bought or stolen or destroyed. Someone could be coerced to vote in a particular way. And every year we can find examples of some fraud related to vote by mail ballots. There were no major incidents involving vote by mail ballots that have come to light in the 2020 uh, elections. And I certainly think, given the pandemic, that vote by mail was the right way to go when you're facing, you know, vote by mail is usually about convenience of voters and of election officials. Uh, this was about uh, human health and safety. And so certainly we should have ramped it up for them, uh, you know, for the last election. But states have different views on vote by mail. And um, some states use it. Some states use it almost exclusively, like uh, Colorado or uh, or Utah, Oregon, uh, uh, right? And in California, it's it's, it's uh, you know more than a majority of people vote by mail, with very little fraud. Not no fraud, but very little fraud. I think the opposition is why is there opposition? Because Donald Trump has made the false claims that vote by mail was the source of fraud, uh, and that's why you see many fewer Republicans voting by mail than in the past because of this, uh, the, the false claims he made about it. Um, but, uh, you know, vote by mail is not my largest concern outside of um, a pandemic. Uh, there are lots of ways that states are making it harder for people to register and vote for no good reason. And vote by mail is just one example of that. Uh, and so let me get to this final question then. Based on what we've said, where we are today, looking ahead to 2022, 2024, uh, what is your confidence that we will be able to repair the system and have a free and fair election? Are you 50% there or 30% or 70%? I don't think I'm going to put a percentage on it. What I'll say is I'm extremely concerned. I've never been more concerned about our democracy than I am uh, right now. Uh, I said that in 2020, and I'm even more concerned now with post-2020 events because the Trumpist forces uh, claiming that the election is stolen are not only continuing to make these false claims, but they are increasingly taking power and changing rules in ways that could undermine the possibility of a fair election in uh, the 2024 presidential race. Rick Hassan, a very sobering, very scary uh, prospect, but we thank you so much for your good work and thank you for taking the time uh, to bring us up to date here on the Bill Press Pod. Thanks, Rick. Thank you. And that's it for the third and final episode of our three-part series, Our Democracy in Peril. Thanks to Richard Hassan for wrapping it up for us, and thanks to all of you for listening and joining. We now see that there's really a double threat that we face, attacks on our democracy at the U.S. Capitol and attacks on our democracy at state capitals and their attempts to undermine free and fair elections. It is nothing less than a constitutional crisis that we should all be concerned about and involved in trying to stop. Listening to our experts, I kept thinking of that famous story about Benjamin Franklin who left the Constitutional Convention. A woman stopped him and said, so what did you come up with? Paraphrasing, of course, and Benjamin Franklin said, quote, a republic if you can keep it. Well, now that challenge is very real, and it's up to us 
to meet it. Thanks, folks, for listening. Thanks for being part of the Bill Press Pod.